following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. We're going to uh, turn now to a new book of the Bible for us to be looking at over the coming few Uh, weeks, and that is the book of Daniel. So uh, grab a Bible nearby, uh, turn to page 884, page 884. Uh, In a few moments, Simon is going to come and preach, but first, Imogen is going to come and read uh, Daniel chapter 1, page 884. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The King would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. 
in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the, all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Imogen, thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. I think probably the best thing to do this morning is um, imagine that you're in the, the heat of the Middle East and consider the temperature to be a vivid illustration of all of this that captures you and draws you into the story. I think that's probably the best way to approach it. But um, if you do feel stuck to your chair at any point, don't worry at all about sort of getting up, wandering around, finding that kind of stuff. We'll, we'll seek to not take too long, but this is a, a wonderful and important uh, part of the Bible we're embarking on. I've, uh, as has been said, recently got back from sabbatical. I've been trying to remember this week how to preach and things like that. So let's pray as we uh, embark on that. Father, thank you for this wonderful part of the Bible. Thank you so much for the vivid stories of the book of Daniel. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us open Bibles and open hearts as we engage with your words. Help us to to look at what you say, to think about it carefully. Pray, Lord, that you'd give us faith to receive your words and to live them out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So is this um, a passage about how we all need to become vegetarians? Because if so, you might need to get someone else to preach it. Um, But uh, uh, it's not. Actually, no, this is a passage about having the courage to be faithful as believers in the Lord, as Christians, making difficult decisions for him when perhaps he feels far away or when there's a a cultural pressure on us to do otherwise. I don't know if you ever feel like that. Uh, There's many reasons that would make us feel like that. Do you ever just wake up in the morning or you're pondering during the day and you just think, I feel far away from God. He feels far away from me for whatever reason. I don't know what kind of a summer you've had, whether you've been aware of his reality and his presence, or maybe you've struggled with that. Uh, We struggle to sometimes feel that God is there for us. And when we feel that way, it's hard to make bold decisions for him to be faithful to him with our choices. Well, if anyone had reason to feel that God was far away, that maybe he'd abandoned them, it was Daniel and his friends. Um, Look at what happens at the very, very start of the book in chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. For Israel in the Old Testament, this is the beginning of the end. The end of their national life in the land ruled over by kings. The year is is roughly 605 B.C., There's only about 17 years to go until the total destruction of Jerusalem, of the temple, uh, the removal of the kings, the end of uh, God's people of the Old Testament and sending them into exile until God did some things to bring them back. It is a grim 
time. You can think of the history of Israel in the Old Testament. I've put a little slide up as a bit of a a pyramid, almost pyramid-shaped. There's a a gradual rise, a high point, and then a fall. Uh, The rise begins with Moses and Joshua as they come in to the land. Then they live there without kings for generations in the book of Judges. Then the high point is under King David, King Solomon. Um, We uh, saw a little bit about that. Um, as, as we were approaching it in 1 Samuel last year. Israel gets established. It's big, it's victorious, it becomes prosperous, it becomes peaceful. They experience some of God's promised blessings for a brief moment. Everything is great. And then, decline. The nation splits in half, uh, mostly gets worse and worse and worse. A few good kings, mostly bad kings, After about 300 years, the northern half of the split gets conquered by a country called Assyria, taken into exile. And now, it's almost the end. Uh, The conquering and the exile is about to happen to the last remaining bit, the southern bit. And if you want to see all of this sort of vividly portrayed in archaeology, you can go and see all sorts of stuff to do with Assyria and Babylon over at the British Museum, if it's still there. Um but hopefully uh, some of it is. So this is Babylon's first attack on Israel about 17 years before the final destruction and total exile. There's a siege in verse 1. In verse 2, the Lord delivers the king, King Jehoiakim, over to the Babylonian forces. You can read all about that in uh, 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles in the Bible. And actually, what happens is Jehoiakim at this point switches sides. So this is not the the end end, the total destruction. Jehoiakim becomes a traitor. The king of Israel just makes an agreement with Babylon. He says, I'm going to pay you and we'll be a Babylonian country from now on. Just a puppet with Jehoiakim pulling, with with Babylon pulling the, the strings on him. And people like Daniel at the time would have looked on and thought, well, so much for the king that God has given us. Strike one against God. And then to underline the superiority of Babylon, in verse 2, they, they loot a load of the, the treasures from the temple, God's temple in Jerusalem, and take them off to Babylon. As if to say, well, our gods in Babylon are better than your God. We win. Your God loses. Strike two against God, defeated by the gods of Babylon, it seems. And not only did Daniel see all of that happen, in verse 3, he was personally swept up into a a human tragedy. A whole generation of, I guess, high-ranking young men from the Israelite royal family, from other significant families in Israel. They were rounded up, they were kidnapped, they were carted off, taken away to Babylon, there to be reprogrammed, to be brainwashed to be culturally assimilated, forcibly turned into supporters of Babylon. Basically, that they were to become Babylonian. Makes me think of the the dreadful stories we've been hearing this last year or so about young Ukrainians being taken off to Russia and put in those camps and subjected to the same kind of thing, filled with Russian propaganda, made to love all things Russian and hate all things Ukrainian. It's a desperately evil tactic. So imagine Daniel and his young friends, just youngsters, probably teenagers, 
far away from home, far away from their homes and families, teachers, what would you imagine that they would think about God, the God of Israel, who they'd grown up to love and to worship? At the very least, he would feel far, far, far away. But more than that, hadn't God failed? Failed to protect his people, failed to show up when it mattered, failed to prevent this humiliating defeat. Don't those stolen treasures from the temple prove that either God is weak and ineffective against the God of Babylon or that he's not there at all? Now, let me say something quietly. Don't forget that in verse 2, we've already been told that God is in full control of all of this. We're told that the Lord delivered King Jehoiakim over to the Babylonians. Actually, this exile has long been threatened by God through his prophets over and over again as a response to the way Israel has, have, have treated him. This is all part of God's plan. But if you're in the midst of it, if you're suffering it, watching it happen, and you're ripped away into exile and this brainwashing, how on earth do you feel? Pretty desperate. Hard to keep trusting God and and living for him in those circumstances. It's easy to look at that extreme experience of, of Daniel and think, well, thank goodness we're not going through anything like that. And we're not... But maybe sometimes in our culture we have similar reasons to feel a bit that God is far away or ineffective or not there at all. I don't know how many of you picked up on that um, Times survey that came out a few weeks ago. Now forgive me if it's been mentioned in sermons already. I'm sure it has. I've been away. I don't know. So I'll mention it again. Um, But there's been a, a survey of Church of England ministers by the Times and apparently... 75% of clergy believe Britain is no longer a Christian country. 65% of clergy believe church attendance will continue to decline in the next years. Only 65% felt it was likely their church would still be holding a service every Sunday in 10 years' time. What do you make of that? And other surveys like that? there's an awful lot to criticize about the survey. Um, A friend of mine wrote that uh, the only valid conclusion from the data is that 75% of clergy were either away in August or too busy to respond to surveys. Um, Others have wondered how different the results might have been if they'd asked people who were uh, leading growing churches. As we know, there are parts of the church in this country, even parts of the Church of England, where there is growth, and we rejoice in that here. Another person, a vicar's wife, wrote, shock horror, 75% of clergy believe Britain is no longer a Christian country. Imagine the alternative. Clergy desperately cling to the fantasy that most of the country still believes, despite overwhelming evidence for much of a century that that is not the case. So, take the survey with a pinch of salt, but nevertheless, how do you feel when stuff like that comes out? And you hear stats about declining church attendance You see church leaders and Christians being less and less influential. You see church leaders compromising. People falling from grace. Maybe it is tempting to think, well, it jolly well looks like God isn't in charge of all of it. Looks like he's pretty ineffective. Or maybe he's abandoned us. Or maybe 
he was never there in the first place. Or it might not be church stats that make you feel that kind of thing, as much as personal circumstances. God wouldn't let this horrible situation, whatever it is, happen to me or to my family or to these people that I love. If something terrible happens or there's a a series of grinding disappointments in life or even we just emotionally struggle to believe that God is present and real and cares in our lives, we can easily conclude he's not there for us. The book of Daniel is going to give us a ton of reasons to trust God, even in those kind of circumstances. Our theme verse from the whole book that we've sort of put in the term card and we're going to be mentioning again and again over this term comes from chapter 7, verse 14. It actually points forward to Jesus. It's talking about the Son of Man. Uh, It promises Jesus and it says, his dominion, Jesus' dominion, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel's going to show us that we can trust in God, and in particular, trust in Jesus, who came for us, for our salvation, who gave his life that we might be forgiven, who rose again that death might be defeated for us that we can trust in him whatever the circumstances, whatever the church looks like in the UK. And he will always, always be there for us, even when our feelings might suggest otherwise. But it's worth mentioning another pressure on Daniel. There's all of these uh, apparent disappointments of of where it looks like God has abandoned him. But also there's, there's the brainwashing tactics of the Babylonians. So not only does God feel far away, culture can entice us from him. So in verse 3, we're told, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen uh, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Maybe you read all of that and think, well, that doesn't sound too bad. And that's the point. This reprogramming, this brainwashing, was intended to be a rather pleasant experience. It was meant to capture hearts as well as minds. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want this kidnapped generation to just know about Babylon. He wanted them to love Babylon. So, I guess they could have been flattered. Well, you know, the the king only chose the best. You're from the best families. Physically, you're the best of Israel. You don't want to go back and mix with the rest of them, do you? You're clever too. It's good you've come to Babylon. Our universities here, they're the best. You'll do much better here. You're, You're in the superpower now. This is the center of global culture, your prospects here 
at the center of the empire, the center of the economy. Well, they're amazing. Israel's a backwater. Here you can really meet your potential. And you won't miss your lifestyle back there. Imagine, compared to Israelite standards, the luxury here in the king's palace. You get to interact with the king himself. Think of the privilege and the food. (laughs) The food, food from the king's table. Really, really good food like they'd never had before. Don't know about you, I'm starting to cave. And wine too. It's all very nice. It's all very flattering, very comfortable for three years. And in the meantime, they would learn all about Babylon, the language and the literature of the place that had taken them in and given them this wonderful new life of opportunities. Oh, and by the way, there are new names as well for you. Uh, Did you spot that in verses 6 and 7? They're old Hebrew names, all referred to the God of Israel in some way. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You can hear the, the beginning of the word Elohim, which means God, at the end of Daniel and Mishael. Elohim means God. You can hear the start of the word Yahweh, which means Lord, at the end of Hananiah and Azariah. Elohim, Yahweh, the names of the God of Israel. So those names were to be dropped. Why would you want to cling on to a defeated God? whose land was in a mess and enslaved to Babylon. The new names all echo names of Babylonian gods. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or my shack, your shack, and a bungalow, as they were called in my youth group when I was growing up. I don't know if that helps. Um, The aim of all of this was total indoctrination, right down to their very identity. So, of course, again, it reminds me of those Russian tactics now and back in Soviet times, the, the Russification of Ukraine and other nations who were told to give up on their own languages and cultures and start speaking Russian, think like a Russian, consider themselves Russian. And very often those tactics worked. And again, as, as Christians in the 21st century here, we're not facing that exact same thing. No one's asking us to change our names or put us through a a three-year brainwashing program, except sometimes you see echoes of that. Students who are told by their lecturers to keep their Christian convictions under wraps. By the way, don't put those opinions in your essay because you won't get good marks. Just go with the flow. Everyone knows that it's easier and more cultural and fashionable to be a secularist today. Keep your faith private. You don't need to let anyone see it. That'd be a bit embarrassing. You wouldn't want it to be ridiculed or or keep you from being accepted socially or keep you from a promotion. Some of you know I've been reading a chap called G.K. Chesterton a lot this summer. He wrote about his own experience of being in academia where everyone assumed... Religion was fading away, and secular materialism would be dominant from from then on. And he wrote this, he says, I found the whole modern world talking scientific fatalism, and we were told that religion had finally disappeared about 50 years ago. Do you know when he was writing? 1926. He was told that religion had, had 
basically disappeared for years previously. He was swept up in all of that thought. It felt modern, it felt sophisticated and acceptable to be an atheist or an agnostic. And it felt old-fashioned and simplistic and a bit silly and a bit embarrassing to tell people that you're a Christian. So he went with the flow for a while, enjoying the flattery of feeling modern and sophisticated. Are you aware of those kinds of pressures on us in our culture? We need to be aware of them. It's not persecution in the way that so many Christians around the world feel it. It's a kind of subtle flattery of secularism and an embarrassment connected with Christian faithfulness. Maybe no one even says anything direct or critical. I'm sure your friends are all very, very nice and would never criticize what you do or what you believe. Or maybe they do. But if they don't, maybe it's just a subtle tone of voice or a knowing look or an indulgent comment. Oh, you go to church on Sundays. That's lovely. Look, um, I'll tell you what we do on Sundays. We have a great time uh, down at the park at this club that we belong to. There's loads of us there, probably, probably more people there than at your church, I, I imagine. And uh, you might know some of them. You'd love it. Uh, why don't you come? Come and join us. You'll meet some great people. They're really well connected. They, they'd really like you. You'd fit in really well. You're, you're just the right kind of person. Nothing wrong with sports clubs down at the park. There's nothing wrong with learning the language and literature of the Babylonians. Daniel and his friends did that really, really well by the end of the chapter. But the pressure to swap allegiance, to push God aside because of cultural pressure to do it and and cultural flattery can be enormous. Forget God, forget church. You you won't do as well there as, as you will here with us. Come and join us. So with these twin pressures on Daniel, feeling far from God and feeling flattered by a a different cultural allegiance, and and with similar pressures on us, how should we react? I mean, think about Daniel and his friends. I guess they had two opposite dangers. One is, they could have just caved in. They could have just gone with it. It's easier. It's quite a nice lifestyle. It's hard to fight against. Let's just get our heads down. Let's just get on with it. They could have disengaged and protested and hated the Babylonians and refused to to do any of it. It would have got them in trouble, but they could have told themselves, you know, we're sticking with our principles. And when people talk about how Christians should respond to culture, often they give those two options. Uh, Some people say... Well, you need to have, I put it on your handout, uh, two options at the top, Christ against culture or Christ in culture. Often those are portrayed as as the two options we have. Culture, well, that's bad and evil and against God, and we need to just stay at a distance and do our own thing and fight against it. But that doesn't do justice to the good things that are in culture. It doesn't do justice to the fact that God blesses all people with all kinds of knowledge and and wisdom in his common grace to the whole world. It doesn't do justice to the fact that Daniel and his friends were perfectly happy to, well, not about happy, but they did learn the language and literature of the Babylonians and become good at that. Others would say, well, the, the alternative is Christ in culture. Let's just 
celebrate everything in culture and say, well, that is where God is. You see God in culture and um, don't worry about resisting any of it because he, he's in culture. And as you look at the changing of culture, you see a, a sort of changing, exciting view of God. And we don't need to fight against anything in culture. Both of those views, Christ in culture or Christ against culture, are far too simplistic. There's a much better option the Bible always brings us. Christ over culture. He's the Lord. His dominion will never pass away. He's responsible for all of the good things in culture. And with his help, we can seek to influence and transform culture where it has gone wrong, where it has departed from him. So they got involved in the learning, and they did very well. And verse 17 tells us that God gave that to them. But how did they do that? How did they get involved without compromise? Well, this is the vegetarian bit. They resolved in verse 8 not to eat the king's food and wine, and in verse 12, to eat nothing but vegetables and water. Now, the key question we need to ask is why? (laughs) Why this particular resolution to eat just vegetables and water? It's not because the Bible commends vegetarians over other things. I'm sorry if you wish it would, but nothing else in the Bible backs that up, I'm afraid. Um, It's not to make a public protest against Babylon because this was a private arrangement with their guard. Nobody else knew about it. Some people say um, it's because they wanted to keep God's food laws from the Old Testament. Um, And they they were concerned they might be forced to eat the wrong kinds of meat that had been uh, outlawed by God, or maybe food sacrificed to idols. Now, there might be something to that, but I don't think it explains everything. They refused the wine as well, and that's not mentioned in Old Testament laws, apart from not getting drunk. And the vegetables were almost certainly prepared in Babylonian kitchens with reference to Babylonian gods as much as the meat. Seems most likely to me that Daniel and his friends chatted with each other and said, if we're going to stay faithful to God, we need to draw a line. And in some senses, it mattered less where that line was as, as, as that they drew the line somewhere, something, something symbolic, something significant that was a decision for, for the Lord that they wouldn't compromise on, something to keep reminding them of him, to keep them from just caving in and becoming brainwashed against God. And they chose vegetarianism, not because it was a good and beneficial thing. Maybe, maybe it is, I don't know. Um, everyone at the time assumed it wouldn't be. It came as a huge surprise to the guard when after the 10-day trial they were looking good and healthy, more so than the others. I think this decision they made, this resolve they made, is a huge help to us as well. Because we too, if, if we're not to be brainwashed and swept away from a culture that a lot of the time wants us to just leave Christianity behind and, and go into a sort of Uh, relentless skepticism and secularism. We might need to resolve to make some choices for the Lord. So I want to, as we finish, think about that. Maybe you already have some distinctively Christian resolutions in your life 
We want to obey all of the commands of the Lord, of course. That is fantastic. It is worth it. Keep going. But there might be some things in your life that you think, this would be a good resolution for me to make. It's not necessarily commanded in the Bible, but it would be good for me, good for me spiritually. It would help me be faithful. Here are some suggestions um, based on people I've met who've talked about things that I thought were, were brilliant. Um, I once had a friend who was quite, up in, quite high up in uh, the banking world. And when he moved from the US and came to a church in London, he quite soon came up to the pastor and said, could you tell me about um, homeless ministries nearby? Um, I, need to, I need to get involved in one. And he said, it, it's just... It's just for me, I need to be grounded. I, I, need, I need something in my life that stops me from being about the money. That was great. That's a great kind of re- resolution to make. It could be a decision about how much alcohol you'll have. The Bible doesn't specify, but it might be very, very wise for you to say to yourself, okay, this is a, an area where I, I could just go a little bit too far, and I haven't set a a sort of personal rule? Maybe I should. What is it? Two drinks? I don't know. You think about it. It could be a decision about Sundays or or weekends and the choices that you make about uh, how often to be here and how to use your weekends. could be a decision about money. Again, the Bible moves from being very specific about a 10% tithe in the Old Testament to a give cheerfully out of the freedom and and grace that God has given you in the New Testament. But great to make a personal resolution about that, whether it's similar to a tithe or something more or something different, whatever you can or or, or want to give. I remember taking the step years ago when I had a, a, a job in an office, saying to my boss, basically, I can't stay late on Wednesdays because I have a, a group I'm committed to at my church, and, and I, and I want to go. Is that okay? <laughs> and thankfully, he was the kind of boss who said, uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> um, and he, he stuck to it. And there were times when I had to sort of gently say, it's a Wednesday. I, I know it's not great timing, but I do need to go. I was leading the group, so it would have been tricky not to get there. But for all of us, those are the kinds of things that we, we could resolve to say to our bosses could be about films or media you watch or choose not to watch all those kind of things good to resolve serve the lord and finally know that god will be with you we know that it was hard for daniel to know that Uh, he hadn't seen jesus yet he was going to see jesus in his visions to come Uh, but he hadn't seen jesus yet And yet God was with Daniel um, in all sorts of ways. We get hints of it as we go through the passage of all the different ways God was at work. Um, And even more so for us, we can know, we can be sure that God is with us. We have seen Jesus come. We have seen him die. We have seen him rise. We know that he is here by his spirit. None of that can be undone. God is with his people. God has promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He doesn't promise it will be easy, but he does promise that he'll never leave you. 
So let me give just a couple of seconds to ponder and keep thinking these thoughts. What, what resolution might it be good for you to make in this new academic year, this new term about serving the Lord faithfully? Let's bow our heads and just take a moment in the quiet. Father, would you grant us the trust in you that Daniel had, the confidence that you are not far away, you haven't abandoned us, you're not absent in any way whatsoever, you are with us. And please give us the resolve that Daniel had. Help us, Father, to see that it is worth taking decisions for you, even when they are tricky, even when they cause us a bit of discomfort, because it helps us and it helps others to see that we are those who trust in the living God, Jesus, who came to save us. We thank you that you are with us and will never depart from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.